0: This is Manna at Valley Baptist Church. Together, we take an in-depth, expository look at God's Word. So open your Bible and join us as we do life together. And now, here's Brad Hannock.
1: Please open your Bibles to the book of Romans. While you're doing that, um, I confess I did go to the grocery store yesterday not to pick up any supplies. I had a hankering for cherry pie. <laughs> so I went and got a of cherry pie, threw it in the oven, and it tasted great. It <laughs> Just saying. It was Friday yesterday. It worked. It worked. Okay, we're going to be in Romans 1, uh, and we're going to pick up the uh, narrative in uh, verse eight, as we talked about last week, Paul is the author of Romans. Romans is arguably the most significant epistle. By the way, epistle just means letter, ever written. The outline of the book of Romans is easy to remember. It's five S's. Rob will put that on screen for you. The introduction, and then we go to sin, uh, chapter one through three; salvation, chapter three twenty through five twenty-one; sanctification, six through eight. Sovereignty 9 through 11, and service 12 through 15, and then a close at the end. So, five S's really helps you outline the book in terms of sequence about how Paul is thinking about this uh, central topic of salvation in the gospel. Last week, as you recall, we reviewed a little bit about Paul's background, we talked about the historical context of the Roman Empire, a little bit about the church in Rome the reasons Paul wrote the letter and then a short exposition of the gospel. Uh, As you recall, chapter one, uh, verse five B, and we didn't highlight this last week, but it really highlights Paul's life mission, Romans one, five B, you can see that in your Bible. It says, to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his name's sake. That's really what Paul was all about. Obedience of faith means coming to God by faith for salvation and then living a life of obedience to God also by faith. So we don't just come for salvation by faith, we live by faith. And of course, this begs the question, if faith is that important, the gospel is that important, why does God save lost people? What is his motive? And of course, you all know John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And it's true that God does love sinners. But the ultimate purpose of the gospel is not the salvation of lost people. The ultimate purpose of all creation, including the gospel, is not about humans at all. It's about the glory of God. Isaiah 43, this is God speaking, and he says, Everyone who is called by my name, who I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even who I have made, which he then further carries on in Isaiah 48, verse 9, for the sake of my name I delay my wrath, and for my praise I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake I will act, for how can my name be profaned, and my glory I will not give to another. The ultimate motive for everything that God does is his glory. And glory really is a word that refers to weight, um, to worth, to radiant splendor. It's really a word of of, of gravity, of center of gravity, this large, uh, magnificent uh, glory of God. God's glory really is the visible expression of his nature. It's the going public, if you will, of his nature. And in Scripture, when we, when we speak of the glory of God, it's almost always seen as blinding, bright, radiant light, which people literally cannot stand in front of. As you remember, when Jesus showed his glory to the disciples, they literally fell down on the Mount of Transfiguration. When God came down on Mount Sinai to give the law to the children of Israel, the whole mountain shook. Literally, the mountain shook, and, and there was thunderbolts and lightning strikes. The word glory is very central in Scripture. It's used 376 times in the Old Testament and 230 times in the New Testament. It's obviously central to all of the Bible. Here's the problem. Sin dishonors God's glory because man rebels against God's rule and exalts themselves in the place of God, and that sin separates us from God. The whole book of Romans is about the gospel, which is God's plan to deal with our sin and to reconcile our broken relationship with him so that he receives the glory and we receive the blessing. And that gospel is Paul's mission, and it's the theme and the core of the book of Romans, and it becomes our mission as well. Paul begins his letter after the introduction with thanksgiving in verse 8, where we'll begin today. He says, first, I thank my God through Christ Jesus for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, Paul is writing to the church in Rome. He's never met them. So he's introducing himself to them, and he says to them, I've been praying for you, and the focus of that prayer is thanksgiving to God, who is the source of all blessings and the center of all things. And the channel through which, of course, we receive the blessing of God is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The object of Paul's thanksgiving here is these Christians in Rome. He doesn't know them but they know the same Jesus and they are serving the same Jesus. And the reason Paul is giving God the thanks for them is because they have a robust faith. And their faith is so robust it's being proclaimed throughout the whole empire. Now that's a dramatic example of people that are not just living the gospel, they're proclaiming the gospel. This church has a reputation throughout the empire, and obviously Paul has heard of that. Verse 9, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making a request, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Here's the principle of verses 9 and 10. Persistent prayer is essential to the success of the gospel. But God's answers do not always agree with our requests. Yeah, most of us have experienced that. Let me repeat that. Persistent prayer is essential to the success of the gospel, but God's answers do not always agree with our requests. See, Paul has never visited Rome before, but he tells them, I have been praying for you unceasingly, and God is my witness to validate that that is true. By the way, unceasing literally means habitually regularly, consistently. There's not a lot of time when Paul is not praying. He's praying routinely. And he says, in my spirit, it literally means I'm serving the gospel. I'm serving God's people through my prayers. And we in manna here understand the power of prayer. Prayer is powerful because it invites, it asks, God to intervene in our given situation, and given circumstances, and he does, and many of you have experienced that. Actually, the real work of ministry, ministry is service, is prayer. Because if God the Holy Spirit does not anoint our message and anoint us as messengers, absolutely nothing supernatural will occur. It'll just be human hot air, and that saves no souls and produces no change. Unceasing prayer is very hard work, extremely hard work. As a matter of fact, if you want to prove to yourself that you have spiritual attention deficit disorder, just try prayer. We're all spiritually ADD when it comes to prayer. It is very hard work to stay focused in prayer. Satan understands that that's power, and so he is always trying to distract us when we're praying. And Paul says, when you pray without ceasing, when you pray and you stay focused, miraculous things occur. Now, the focus of Paul's prayer is not his own comfort. He's not praying, oh God, give me more comfort, give me more luxury. He's praying for the church. He's praying for his long-standing desire to visit them. He's been planning to visit them for quite some time, but he's probably been prevented because the emperor Claudius... Uh, evicted all the Jews from Rome in A.D. 49 due to their disturbances, their divisiveness. And it was not really, at the end of the day, it was not yet God's time for Paul to go to Rome. Actually, Paul was going to go to Rome. But first, he would be arrested, languish in prison for two years, endure a life-threatening shipwreck, and finally arrive in Rome as a prisoner in chains. Not exactly what he had in mind, right? His prayer was answered, but not in the way that he had expected. How many of you have ever had God answer your prayers in unexpected ways? As a matter of fact, I think most of the time, God answers our prayers in unexpected ways. Typically because his ways are generally, I say that tongue-in-cheek, always, better than our requests. So when he answers our prayers and he does that in surprising ways, it's because he's got a better way in mind than we do. Now, the interesting question, Paul has been praying, God, I want to come to Rome, open the doors, please make it happen. And it's interesting, why does Paul want to come to Rome? And he answers that question in verse 11. Four, I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established that is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have prevented, been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Here's the principle. It is both an obligation and a privilege to proclaim the good news that God has made a way for people to have a relationship with Him. It is both an obligation and a privilege to proclaim the good news that God has made a way for people to have a relationship with Him. Paul says, I long to see you. He's never met them, but he's been praying for them so long that he loves them even though they're still face-to-face unacquainted. And he, and he wants to come to them because he wants to give them some spiritual gift. Now, this is not a specific spiritual gift in the sense of you've got the gift of prophecy or knowledge. It literally refers to anything that will be of spiritual benefit. Paul wants to come to them so he can be of a spiritual benefit to them. And this should be our motive as well with each other. How can we build each other up? How can we encourage each other in Christ? How can we be a spiritual benefit? He, wants, he uses the word establish, which literally means lay a foundation. He wants to strengthen their faith. He wants to build them up. He wants to help them grow spiritually strong. And he wants to help them bear more fruit. He wants to encourage them, but he also wants to be encouraged by them. So he uses this word together with them. And I think that's extremely important in the body of Christ. God made us a family so we could do life together, so we could build each other up, so we could encourage each other because we are far better together than we are alone. God never made his people to live in isolation. And he says, I want to obtain some fruit. I want to promote spiritual growth and see maturity in your lives I really want to evangelize the lost in Rome, but I also want to build up and edify existing believers. So he's got a dual focus. There's lost in Rome that need the gospel, but the body of Christ in Rome also needs encouragement and edification and maturity and spiritual fruitfulness. And he wants wants them all to grow in faith and obedience. As a matter of fact, he feels so strongly about this. He says, I am under obligation. The word there literally is a debtor. I owe. Paul says, I've been given the grace of God. I've been commissioned by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles. God's grace to us is a great privilege, but it also obligates us and should motivate us to share God's good news with others who also need God's grace. You know, let's say there was an earthquake and you were trapped inside a building with a bunch of other people. And let's say you managed to find your way out of that twisted wreckage of a building that fell down, and you got out. You owe the people inside to go back in and show them the way out. If you found the way out, you need to show them the way out. And God has given us grace and forgiveness. And withholding God's in grace and forgiveness for others is wrong. We obligated, and it's a privilege to show other people the way that God has shown us grace and forgiveness and love and mercy. The truth of it is grace is unmerited favor. None of us qualify for God's grace. And yet God inundates us, literally showers us with blessings every day. Jesus stated this principle and our response to it in Matthew 10.8. He said, look, he's talking to the disciples. He says, freely you received, right? God is a God of giving. God is a generous God. Therefore, you freely give. What you've been given by God, share with others. That's the whole principle of the good news. So like Paul, we're debtors because there's a... There's, Everyone around us needs the gospel because only the gospel can forgive their sin and reconcile their broken relationship to God. Paul uses a couple of words to describe when he says everyone. He says both Greeks and barbarians. Now, what he's saying is all classes of people, all races, all ethnicities, all uh, any sort of category that you could name, the Greeks looked at everyone other than Greeks as barbarians. Because the Greeks believed that all languages other than Greece, Greek, were unintelligible babbling. So the Greek word for barbar- barbarian was barbaros, bar, 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 barbar. And they said that's how all these other languages sound. They're bab 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 babbling, right? So they said if you don't speak Greek, you're a barbar bar barbar barbarian, because that's how your languages sound to us. Yeah, I know. We do the same thing. It may not be with Greek language, but we have our categories. Paul says, I'll preach the gospel to the wise and to the foolish. He says, regardless of race or class or education or wealth or location or ethnicity, everyone needs to hear the gospel. Amen? Amen. So, what is the gospel? Now, the content of the gospel is defined in the next two verses, verses 16 to 17. It's the content of the gospel that gives Paul the boldness to preach it wherever God gives him opportunities. It's interesting. In verse 14, Paul says he's obligated to preach the gospel. In verse 15, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel. In verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel. James Boyce once wrote that Romans 1, 16 to 18 are the most important verses in the letter of Romans and in perhaps all of literature. They are the theme of this epistle and the essence of Christianity. The theme of Romans, the entire book, is right here in the next two verses, verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Here's the principle. Since the gospel is God's power to save sinners, we must believe it and proclaim it boldly. Since the gospel is God's power to save sinners, we must believe it and proclaim it boldly. And Paul says, I am not ashamed. Now the word ashamed means embarrassed, humiliated, remorseful, regretful. Not ashamed, obviously, is the opposite of that. It means proud and and bold and confident. And Paul is proud of the gospel and bold to proclaim it. By the way, in Paul's day, practicing and proclaiming gospel could cost you. Cost you your job. Could cost you your position in the synagogue. Could get you excommunicated. Cost you your family, it was very common for your family to disown you if you followed Christ. It could cause you physical persecution, criminal prosecution, and possibly execution. So it was expensive in that era to practice and preach the gospel. So Paul is coming to Rome and he's preaching the gospel, and the Romans worshipped power. The Roman culture was all about power, and Paul was preaching about a Jewish carpenter who had been crucified by the Romans as an enemy of the state. So Paul's preaching about a dead man who claimed to come back to life in order to give eternal life to all who trusted him. If you're a Roman, you would laugh. At best, you would mock. You're all about power, and he's talking about a dead man who was crucified by the Roman Empire as a common criminal. In fact, Paul had endured much more than just disdain. He'd been savagely persecuted for the gospel. He'd been beaten, he'd been in prison, he'd been stoned, he'd been shipwrecked. Most of the people he encountered rejected his message and persecuted him. So it begs the question, how did Paul persevere in the face of intense persecution? What kept him going and why could he proclaim the gospel with such boldness and confidence? And Paul gives us his perspective in a few chapters, Lord willing, we'll be there in several months. Romans 8, verse 18. Here's the perspective that will keep you going in the middle of persecution. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul was looking at this temporal life through the lenses of eternity. He was looking at the pain and suffering of life on earth through the lenses of heaven, which was coming at that point. That's true for us today. When we look at this world and we look at literally it falling apart, it's very easy to become discouraged, but this world is not our home. We don't live here forever. We're going to be here for a very long time short period of time. And so what Paul says and what Jesus says, interesting in Hebrews, it says Jesus, even though he endured the cross, he despised the shame. Why? For the joy that was set before him. He was looking when he was going to be with his father in heaven. He was looking to the joy of heaven, and that's what caused him and gave him the strength and endurance to endure the cross because of the joy that was going to come on the other side of the cross. So, focusing on the long term gain helps us endure the short term pain. And in our day, you know, we're not persecuted to the point of death by any stretch of the imagination, but people fail to share the gospel today because they feel rejection, ridicule, social isolation. You know, the gospel claims to be the truth, a the truth with a capital T. This is not a little t truth. This is a the truth with a capital T, absolute truth. Jesus Christ is the only way to God. And our culture positively hates the idea of non-negotiable, absolute truth. Anyone who claims they know of the truth is viewed as both ignorant and arrogant. How dare you? How arrogant that you know the truth. Yes, well, Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. See, the gospel itself offends people because the gospel is a direct attack on human pride and self-sufficiency. You know, the gospel means good news. But the first part of the good news is really, really bad news. The gospel says, God is the creator. You were created by God to have a personal relationship with him, and nothing will satisfy your soul ultimately except a living, loving, obedient relationship with God himself. God is holy and he hates all sin because it violates his moral perfection. You are a sinner and your sin has separated you from God, and you are accountable to God for your sin. By the way, there is nothing you can do by yourself on your own to earn God's favor. You are helpless, and you need rescuing. You need a Savior. Human pride hates that message and often rejects the messenger unless God has prepared their heart to respond. See, until people recognize they need saving, talking about Jesus as Savior is meaningless. They don't think they need a Savior. We really don't do them a service if we don't talk about sin before we talk about a Savior. No one takes medication for an illness they don't believe they have. See, Paul is not ashamed because the gospel is the power of God that produces salvation. Salvation is God's power in action. The word power here is dudumus. It means dynamite. It's dynamo. It's power. It's not human power. It's God's power that gives new life to dead sinners. God's power gives people everlasting life. Dwight Moody once said, the gospel is like a lion. All a preacher has to do is open the door of the cage and get out of the way. You know, once a lion gets out of a cage, it doesn't need any more help from you. The good news is that we're not called to defend the gospel so much as we're called to declare it. The good news is we can't save people, but we can tell people about the Savior. And if we don't tell them, how will they know? So at the end of the day, we need to ask God for courage. And then we need to open our mouth and tell them what Jesus did for us. And let the Holy Spirit work on their heart and open their heart. We cannot persuade people to believe. And if we could, as Pastor Roger has said, someone else will persuade them not to. So that's why that prayer without ceasing we talked about 10 minutes ago is so important. Because if the Holy Spirit goes before you, he will open their heart and then open your mouth. Because the power of God always changes whatever it encounters. God's power never leaves things the way they were. And I'm very comforted when I share my faith with Isaiah 55, verse 11. This is the promise of God about His own word. And He says, "...so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty." without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And the verse before that, he's talking about rain which falls on the earth and it produces life. When you get rain, you know, you get weeds that grow and plants that grow. It's inevitable. Rain comes, plants grow. He said, when my word goes out of my mouth, it's gonna produce a result. It's gonna produce the result I want it. So you don't have to magically empower the word of God. The Holy Spirit does that. You open the door of the cage, let the lion of God's word get out Get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit work on those hearts and you pray, pray, pray. And he says, it's the power of God for salvation. Salvation doesn't mean God's gonna help tweak your life. Salvation means rescuing from disaster and death. You know, you don't get rescued from a birthday party. Nobody rescues you from a picnic. You know, you get rescued when your ship sinks in a storm 50 miles offshore and you can't swim, and you're bleeding, and you're surrounded by sharks. Yeah, that's when you need rescuing. Well, that's the sinner, right? So what does the gospel rescue us from? Well, the gospel rescues us, number one, from guilt. Real guilt over real sin that has separated us from God. The gospel rescues us from the rot and decay of sin. The gospel rescues rescues us from slavery, from the addiction to do what is wrong. And most importantly, and we'll talk about this next week in great detail, Lord willing, the gospel rescues us from the wrath of God against all sin and unrighteousness. The Bible says that the sinner is separated from God and literally dead in sin, and the gospel saves us from eternal death. The good news is the gospel not only negatively saves us from sin, it positively saves us for God. The gospel transforms us because it gives us God's life. We have God's life living in us, and it brings us into a right relationship with God where we're accepted, we're loved, we're made holy, we're adopted into God's family. He calls us His own, He gives us His name, and He makes us part of His own family. So salvation is the meeting point where God's grace and power meets human faith and repentance. That's salvation. It's where God's grace and willingness to forgive meets human faith and repentance. And Paul says that is available for everyone. Everyone. Revelation 3.20. This is Jesus talking. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. Salvation's available to everyone, regardless of ethnicity, gender, social status, economic status, background, parentage or parentage, social status, doesn't matter. This doesn't mean everyone will be saved. This is not universalism. The condition... For the application of salvation to the life is faith or belief on the part of the sinner. Paul says to everyone who believes, who believes. And in the Greek, believes means to live by, not just what comes out of your mouth, but to live by. It's present tense and it means one who continuously believes. Not just a one-time belief of salvation, it's a lifetime ongoing Every day, choosing to believe that Jesus is the Christ whom God sent to earth to pay the penalty for our sins and die in our place. And faith is the only condition for salvation. There is nothing else attached to that. You know, faith is far more than just mental assent. Faith requires commitment. It it, it really is relying on God. It really is staking your entire future on His promises. You've probably heard the story of the famous French tightrope walker in the late 19th century who was invited to come to the United States, walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Needless to say, he attracted large crowds, and they applauded. He literally crossed back and forth, and he crossed blindfolded while pushing a wheelbarrow. And he asked a spectator if she believed, do you think I could do this again? She said, of course, I just saw you do it now. He says, good. Good. And you get into the wheelbarrow and I'll push you across to the other side of the falls. Belief, faith, is getting into the wheelbarrow. Belief in the gospel for salvation is getting into God's wheelbarrow and letting Him push you across wherever He chooses to take you. I think sometimes we get in the wheelbarrow and then we turn around and say, turn right here, turn left here. No, if you're in the wheelbarrow, God's going to push and lead your life where he wants. It's literally putting our whole life in his hands. A good example of that is Abraham. Uh, Kyle and I were talking a while back and this verse struck me. Kyle had mentioned it. Uh, Hebrews 11 verse eight. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Yeah, it was a journey to a location that he had never been. He had no idea how to get there. As a matter of fact, he didn't even know where there was. He just put one foot in front of the other, obeyed, And God guided him step by step, day by day, into the land of promise, which was Canaan. And he was 75 years old when he left home. Failure to launch, but he finally got it going, right? That's us. Day by day, step by step. We don't know what the future holds, but God does. Paul says, everyone who believes... To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And you say, well, why in that sequence? Well, chronologically, the Jews received God's grace first. God started the Jewish nation with Abraham. He gave them his covenants. He promised and gave them Messiah, Jesus Christ. He gave them the entire Old Testament revelation. Jesus the Messiah came as a Jew and proclaimed the gospel to who? First, to the Jews. After his resurrection, he told... uh, commanded them to go and make disciples of all the nations. Actually, he did that in Matthew 28 beforehand, Acts 1.8. says, now you're going to receive power to get that job done. I told you in Matthew 28 before I ascended what to do. And in Acts 1.8, you are going to now receive the power to make that happen at that point in time. So verse 16 tells us what the gospel is. Verse 17 explains why the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Verse 17. For in it, in the the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Here's the principle Salvation means that the righteousness of God is applied to every sinner who trusts Christ through faith. Salvation means that the righteousness of God is applied to every sinner who trusts Christ through faith. Now, the word righteousness means that which is morally right, that which is just. There's really three possible interpretations here of what the righteousness of God means. This really is the core of this letter. First of all, one of God's attributes, one of his character traits is righteousness, in that God always does what is right because he's morally perfect. Now, it's important that the sinner recognize that God is morally perfect because if sinners don't realize that God's standard is moral perfection, then they conclude that their current standard of righteousness is good enough. God is going to declare them not guilty based on their own performance, right? However, God's standard doesn't tolerate any sin, right? How many of you people say... I'm a good person. God's going to let me in heaven. You ever heard that? I mean, you know, I haven't done all this bad stuff. I'm, I'm good. What they're saying is, I'm good enough. God's passing grade is 100%. With zero exceptions, a perfect score every single day of your life. And people say, Well, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. And of course, Jesus. Amplified that standard when he said that if you hate your brother, it's the same as killing them. And if you lust after anyone, that's the same as committing adultery. And by that standard, no one is perfect, right? No one passes. And of course, the Bible says that's true. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When Martin Luther understood this, he was in despair. Because he said, If this verse is talking about the perfect righteousness of God, it's real clear that I will never get into heaven by my own good works. And he was in despair for months. Second meaning of the righteousness of God can mean God's saving power. See, God's saving power not only declares the sinner not guilty, the saving power of God actually transforms the sinner's life. God's power not only gives sinners a new legal status of not guilty, it actually changes their very nature. See, God gives us his life. At salvation, we get his life. And of course, his life is multidimensional. Three things happen at salvation and go on for all eternity. Number one, God declares you and I not guilty. That is a new forensic status. And we are free from the penalty of sin. That's called justification just as if I never sinned, right? Second, for the rest of your life on earth, God will shape us more and more like Jesus so that we become more and more godly and less and less sinful. That's progressive holiness. We are becoming progressively more and more like Jesus and less and less sinful, and we are being progressively freed from the power of sin. That's called sanctification. So, We're declared righteous, that's the penalty of sin because Jesus took the penalty. After salvation, the rest of our life on earth, we're being made more and more and more and more holy by the power of God through the indwelling Holy Spirit and we're being freed from the power of sin. And when we go to heaven, we die and God takes us to heaven and now we're freed from the presence of sin because there's no sin in heaven at all. And I can't wait. And I'm not worried about your sin. The sin that bothers me is Brad's. I'm sick and tired of it, right? When we get to heaven, we will have no sin anywhere. That's called glorification. Justification, sanctification, glorification. We got months to talk about this. I'm just introducing these concepts. Now, those two definitions of the righteousness of God, God's perfect attribute of righteousness and the saving power of God, are really not what Paul's talking about here. What he's really talking about when he talks about the righteousness of God is that the righteousness of God is a gift from God to sinners who believe. When Martin Luther finally understood that this righteousness of God was God's gift to the sinner, changed his life and history. Here's what happens. At the moment of salvation, Jesus takes our sin that separated us from God, and he gives us his perfect righteousness. It is literally an exchange. He takes our sin that separated us from God, and he gives us his righteousness. So that the perfect righteousness that God demands from us in order to have a relationship with us is the exact same righteousness that he gives to us through Jesus Christ. Now when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ in us, And therefore, he gives us a new legal status that says, you are now just in my sight. You are now not guilty. So God's righteousness is a gift that he applies to us and every sinner by faith. It's a gift from God and it's not based on anything we do. It's based on everything that Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. We only have to accept that gift to apply to us. You know, if you've committed the crime and the governor pardons you for the crime and you refuse to accept the pardon, you will still have to pay the penalty for your crime. Sinners have committed the crime against God. Jesus says, I have come to forgive that sin and take the penalty on myself. But the sinner still has the opportunity to accept the pardon or reject the pardon. Hell is filled with people who have refused to accept the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and choose to pay the penalty themselves. Thomas Schreiner writes, The saving righteousness of God is a gift received by faith alone. And God declares sinners to be in the right before him on the basis of Christ's atoning death. Yet God's declaration of righteousness, which is a gift, is an effective declaration so that those who are pronounced righteous are also transformed by God's grace. Believers are changed by the grace of God. And this transformation is an essential ingredient of God's saving work. God's declaration of righteousness really frees people from sin. So God not only declares us not guilty, He actually opens our prison cell, escorts us outside to His waiting limousine, takes us to His mansion, signs our adoption paperwork so that we can become His own children. He not only gives us His name, He gives us His nature. Is very DNA, because the Holy Spirit comes to live inside us. And now, because we have his nature, we want to do what's right. We want to do what's right. And we also have the power to do it through the Holy Spirit. And of course, this righteousness of God is a gift. It, it wasn't discovered. It was disclosed. Paul says it's revealed. God took the initiative to reveal His righteousness to us and it was revealed in human form. The righteousness of God we can see and touch and hear in the person of Jesus Christ. Praise God. We have God in human form and we can know Him personally. Revelation of that righteousness is God's work. How we respond is our work, and we are to respond by faith. Paul uses the words from faith to faith. What he really means is from faith first to last. It's only faith, nothing but faith. And Paul basically is telling the Romans, look, salvation by faith is not my idea. This is not a new concept. People have always been made right by God Through faith, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the just shall live by faith. And he quotes the Old Testament to underscore his point that faith has always been the means of eternal life. And he says, the righteous man shall live by faith or the one who is righteous by faith shall live. Here's the principle. We're not only saved by faith, we must live by faith every day. So he's talking about a righteous man, righteous woman. This is someone who is in a right standing with God, one whom God declares is righteous. So the one who is righteous, the one who is declared not guilty, is the one who is justified by faith, and they will be saved. They will live. They will live by faith. Salvation does not become a reality without faith because God's grace is his unmerited favor to us and faith is our response. You know, Ephesians 2.8 and 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not, it's a gift of God, not a result of works of So God's work is grace, unmerited favor. That favor is accessible when we respond by faith. Grace is from God. Faith is our response to that. And when those two meet, salvation being declared right by God occurs. Do you know, you can give someone a gift at Christmas. That's grace. When they accept and receive it, that's faith. You ever had a gift refused? You ever given a loved one a gift and they refused it? Well, God is how a lot of his children that have refused his gift. They said, I don't want it. Okay? Paul here is quoting Habakkuk 2 4 when he says, The righteous man shall live by faith. Let me give you the context. This is really powerful. God has told the prophet Habakkuk, that he's going to raise up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and they're going to invade Judah and punish his covenant people, his own children, for their own wickedness. And Habakkuk is stunned that a pure and holy God would use an evil, idolatrous people like the Babylonians to accomplish his righteous purposes. And God says, Habakkuk, eventually the Chaldeans are going to be judged and destroyed for their own wickedness. In the meanwhile, the righteous remnant of Judah will need to live by faith in God and trust His promises. They will be in the Babylonian captivity for how long? Seventy years before Babylon is destroyed by Assyria and they're able to go home again. Now that's a long Time to live by faith. You know what that is? That's a lifetime. And that's exactly how long we've been called to walk by faith. Faith is trusting in God and doing His will while you're doing it. Habakkuk responds to God's revelation, and it's a painful revelation. God has just said, the entire nation is not just going to get a virus. They're going into captivity. You're going to cease to exist in this land for 70 years. You think we've got issues today with COVID-19? Just a little perspective. Here's Habakkuk's response to God's prophecy. Habakkuk 3.17. You should underline this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there' be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there' be no cattle in the stalls. He's saying, you can't go to Costco at 4:30 in the morning and get bottled water and toilet paper. There is no Costco. There is no fields that are producing food. You're in captivity and you're being fed whatever they choose to feed you, right? Habakkuk says, it doesn't matter if there's nothing, if there's no sustenance, verse 18, yet I will exult in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Verse 19, the Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. Habakkuk is saying something profound. He's saying that circumstances are not the foundation of life. The person and promises of God, that's the foundation. That's the center. That's the core. That's the gravity. That's what we build everything on. Habakkuk is not living under his circumstances. He's living above his circumstances because he's living by faith. He's trusting in the living God who saves him and strengthens him and guides him. You know... Today we are living in a world with this pandemic and the consequences of this pandemic are overturning a lot of our assumptions about how our lives should operate. We've gotten used to what we call normal. And God says, "Um, I'm in control. You know one of the most profound thoughts that occurred to me this week? In the last seven days, not one time, did my phone ring and God asked me for counsel about how to run his universe? Did he call you? I don't think he called you. You know why? Because he didn't need to. He is on the throne. If you need a little encouragement about who's in charge, read Isaiah 40. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or as his counselor informed him? whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? The answer is no one. The next several months, likely, are going to exercise our faith. And it will be very, very good for us. And we're not going to like it at all because it's going to push us probably way outside our comfort zone. And you're going to see people around you without Jesus who operate in fear. And you will not operate in fear, will you? You will choose to operate in faith because the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth has not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will not walk and not become weary. God says the same things to us. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He is sovereign over everything that happens, and God will work all things out for his glory and our good. Let's review now, and then Marty will come and lead us in prayer and praise. Number one, and we're going to exercise this in the next several weeks. Persistent prayer is essential to the success of the gospel, but God's answers do not always agree with our requests. There are people who need the virus of the gospel big time, and this is going to give an opportunity because they're going to operate in fear, and you will operate in faith, and they're going to want to know why you're not standing in line with sharp elbows down at the grocery store trying to buy the last bit of provisions, right? Number two. It's both an obligation and a privilege to proclaim the good news that God has made a way for people to have a relationship with Him. Number three, since the gospel is God's power to save sinners, we must believe it and proclaim it boldly. Number four, salvation means that the righteousness of God is applied to every sinner who trusts Christ through faith and that gift of God, that righteousness of Jesus Christ, is available to everyone who exercises faith. And lastly, we are not only saved by faith, we must live by faith every day. And by the way, living by faith every day is a choice. Every morning you wake up, you can say, I can either live in fear or I can live in faith. And I know what you will do. Now that you know, do. I love you all, Lord willing. By the way, um, unless the Lord tells me otherwise, I will be here next week at 9.30. If the doors are not locked, we'll keep everybody in the loop, but I'm planning, we're prepping. Every week I'm prepping. I will be here unless the Holy Spirit does something different, so put it on your calendar. Love you.
0: You've been listening to Manna at Valley Baptist Church. To hear this lesson and more, subscribe to our podcast, Manna at Valley Baptist Church on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Manna is taught by Brad Hanick and meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California. We believe in doing life together and we encourage you to join us on Sunday morning. For more information, visit manapodcast.com. Thank you for studying with us. And now that you know, do.